Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening and thank you for being with us. And all you dedicated viewers will be delighted to know the numbers just keep going up. We couldn't be happier with the response of viewers all over the world to ADH. As you know, I talked to Lord Sumption last night and he raised significant questions about freedom and democracy. How under coronavirus, every imaginable freedom was denied to us by authoritarian edicts bordering on the dictatorial. Of course, this is the way to erode democracy when people are excluded. How many times did I say during that coronavirus nonsense, show me a piece of paper to justify these decisions? During all that fiasco, and that's the appropriate word, billions of dollars were spent when people could have been in work and at work. But as Lord Sumption said, once you inject enough fear and alarmism into people, they tend to surrender and democracy is dead, killed from within. Well, it prompted me to think of the fate of the ousted leader in Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi. She's been further convicted this week on two more trumped up corruption charges, two more three-year sentences added to previous convictions. She now has a 26-year prison term. She's 77. She was detained on February 1 last year when the military seized power from her elected government. In November 2020, the public of Myanmar voted. In the lower house, she won 258 seats out of 440. In the upper house, she was 138 seats out of 224. No corruption, total democratic power. The military then moved in because they feared her. She's a 1991 Nobel Peace Laureate. She was convicted of, listen to this, illegally importing and possessing walkie-talkies, of violating coronavirus restrictions, 26 years, of breaching the country's Official Secrets Act and of election fraud, of course. All of this politically motivated in an attempt to discredit her and prevent her from taking part in the next election. Her trials have taken place in a purpose-built court, purpose courtroom in the main prison. No Westminster rule of law there. She's not been seen in public or allowed to speak in public. Her lawyers have not been allowed to speak publicly on her behalf or about her trial. The military have imposed a gag order on them. And remember, I spoke last week after her chief economic advisor, the Australian professor, Sean Turnell. He too has been jailed on trumped up charges. Doesn't this admit of a simple question? What does the so-called free world do, apart from completely ignoring their fate? I'll return next week to this serious issue of losing, a losing Putin in the war against Ukraine and what it means for the West. Is a losing Putin more dangerous than a winning one? I note the comments of Russia's one-time largest foreign investor, Bill Browder, allegedly worth about $160 million. He was the biggest foreign investor in Russia after the Soviet Union collapsed. He's a former insider, mate of Putin's, turned outsider. He made the point about Russia, that his views are different from what you would hear from 90% of the so-called experts the political scientists, this fellow Browder ominously predicts the war could be a long drawn out conflict, which he says, quote, will finish one of two ways. Either Ukraine wins or Russia wins. That's it. There's no middle ground. He said, I know Putin. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't play by any set of rules, unquote. As I've said before, what the layman doesn't understand is there are 195 countries in the world, and this applies to Myanmar as well. 193 are member states of the United Nations. Only two countries have non-member observer status, the Holy See and the state of Palestine. In a world of 195 countries, how does one man hold the rest of the world to ransom or allow the military to do what they're doing in Myanmar? Tonight, I'll look at this question in New South Wales of land tax versus stamp duty. I'm not sure the Premier of New South Wales knows what he's on about. And the crisis in education. The one person who has talked more sense on this than anyone apart from Mark Latham is the former President of the United States, Donald Trump. 
I'll also look at waste in government, since Dr Chalmers says he won't raise taxes. If you don't do that, you've got to cut spending. Where? And nurses? Another crisis. The prediction is, if we keep going as we are, by 2030, we'll have a nursing shortage of 110,000 across Australia. And that, of course, affects all of us. And the Melbourne Lord Mayor, Sally Cap, what's she drinking? And a big weekend in sport. I've got some insights into that. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Mark Latham and I, and a few others, only a few, have endless discussions about the crisis in education. All you hear from Ministers of Education is the, is the defence of a great education system, which actually verges on rubbish. There are any number of internationally credible measurements of educational progress, or its opposite, going backwards, that demonstrate that for all the money spent and all the theories, not only has there been no improvement in Australian education outcomes, but the deterioration in Australian outcomes has been profound. In terms of these outcomes, students look at you with a blank face when you talk to them about punctuation, apostrophes, full stops, history, who crossed the Blue Mountains, who were Burke and Wills, who was Major Mitchell, who was Alan Cunningham. And then there's the geography. Have they heard of Gunnedah, Mareeba, Hamilton, Wyala, Albury, Port Hedland? Do they know why Melbourne's called Melbourne? Do they know who planned the city of Adelaide? Or doesn't that matter? If it doesn't matter, why are we forking out all this money? $120,000 million, $120 billion. Has education today heard of quality literature? Or do we bury them in the morbid poetry of Sylvia Plath? Is a child properly educated who can't recite a verse of poetry? Who knows nothing about Banjo Patterson, Judith Wright, Kenneth Slessor, let alone Dickens, Bronte, Thackeray or John Donne, William Wordsworth or Coleridge? And if they don't, what are these billions being spent on? There has to be a major examination of what is happening in the classroom. Find out what is going on in our classrooms. I'll tell you what's going on. The kids are fed up to the gills with climate change and welcome to country. And what matters, what should be happening in the classroom goes by the wayside. Well, it's almost two years exactly since the much maligned American President Donald Trump launched a scathing attack on education in America. It was a significant statement about America's culture wars and it applies in its entirety to our country. The then President Trump linked the violence in US cities to an education system, he said, that has taught hatred rather than patriotism. Trump told a conference on US history at the Washington National Archives in September of 2020, and I quote, the left-wing rioting and mayhem are the direct result of decades of left-wing indoctrination in our schools, unquote. He said US schools and universities were teaching, quote, critical race theory, unquote, which taught young Americans that the US was a wicked and racist nation of which they should be ashamed. Said President Trump, quote, the left is attempting to divide Americans by race in the service of political power, unquote. We've got a government here that's trying to divide Australians by race in the constitution and barely a political corporate or media voice speaks in opposition to this voice. Well, Donald Trump said, quote, by viewing every issue through the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation and we must not allow this to happen, unquote. Said President Trump, the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that if not removed will dissolve the civic bonds which tie us together. It will, he said, destroy our country, unquote. Donald Trump went on two years ago, quote, whether it's the mob on the street or the cancel culture in the boardroom, the goal is the same, to silence dissent, to scare you out of speaking the truth and to bully Americans into abandoning their values, their heritage and their very way of life, unquote. Australia Today. This is what Lord Sumption was talking to me about last night via the death of democracy. This is outstanding stuff by President Trump two years ago. He blamed Democrat mayors for failing to stamp out the violence. He lay the blame at the education system, which he said didn't share American values. Said President Trump in 2020, quote, there's no more powerful force than a parent's love for their children. And patriotic mums and dads, he said, are going to demand 
that their children are no longer fed hateful lies about this country. American parents, he said, are not going to accept indoctrination in our schools, cancel culture at work, or the repression of traditional faith, culture and values in the public square, not anymore, unquote. Well, where are Australian parents opposing all of this? Donald Trump said then two years ago, he would form, quote, a national commission to promote patriotic education, which he said would encourage a curriculum that would teach students to, quote, love America with all their heart and soul, unquote. What a magnificent idealistic thought. Mr. Trump then sought to portray his opponent, Joe Biden, as weak on law and order and challenged him to condemn by name left-wing groups such as Antifa. Well, if Biden was weak then, he's impotent now. Said Donald Trump going on with the case and not begging any pardons, and I quote, students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. This is a Marxist doctrine holding that America is a wicked and racist nation, that even young children are complicit in oppression and that our entire society must be radically reformed. He said, quote, critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools. It's being imposed into workplace training and it's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbours and families. He said, teaching this horrible doctrine to our children is a form of child abuse in the truest sense of those words, unquote. The much maligned Donald Trump. Do we have a political leader here with a similar willingness to take on a rotten education system? Wasn't even Malcolm Turnbull prevented by so-called educated students at Sydney University from accepting an invitation to speak? This is what the system is producing and they vote. Email me your thoughts, Alan Jones at ADH. TV. I must confess, I've been around in the world of politics a lot longer than Dominic Perrottet, even though too often the New South Wales Premier, who started brilliantly articulating his philosophy, he has seem, seemingly fallen by the political wayside. He's made the same mistake as they all make. It's called hubris, excessive pride or self-confidence. He knows everything. He's been going on about land tax replacing stamp duty as the only feather he has to fly with. But remember, he has presided over a $27 billion spending spree in the recent New South Wales budget, annual expenditure growth growth of 26.5%, net debt $115 billion, gross debt $182 billion, and in a budget of $95 billion, the only savings were piddling $32 million. And remember the $25 million flag on the bridge? This is not a Liberal government. Having read the polls though, and an election not far away, he's now flying the land tax stamp duty kite. Firstly, he said months ago that he couldn't go at it alone, phasing out stamp duty, that it would cost the government billions of dollars in revenue. He would need to reach a formal agreement with the Commonwealth. That was in June. Now it's October. I don't know what's happened to the formal agreement with the Commonwealth. But a bill has been presented to the New South Wales Parliament, which if you are to believe the headlines, which you shouldn't, land tax would replace stamp duty, which it won't. Stamp duty has been around since 1865. It averages about 4% of the purchase value of your property, the buyer pays, which means many people in big houses avoid selling or downsizing because of the burden of stamp duty if they buy a replacement property. But what about land tax? There is currently a land tax in New South Wales on the unimproved value of your land, but you don't pay land tax on your home. You don't pay land tax, what's called the principal place of residence. You don't pay land tax on your farm, known as the primary production land, only the land I mean, not everything else. And you don't pay land tax on any land you own with total taxable value below the land tax threshold. Now, I won't get into the complicated formula which, used, which is used to calculate land tax, but it's a bit of a misnomer because not all land is taxed. So what Perrottet is saying is to give first home buyers, only first home buyers, the option of paying a land tax on their new purchase or sticking with stamp duty. Now, for example, a $600,000 home, 4% of that is 24,000, that's stamp duty. Or do you pay a land tax forever, forever and ever, every year, 
until you sell the house. And if it's calculated on the land value on which your house stands and the value keeps going up, do you have this land tax albatross around your neck forever? I have to say I'm in favour of land tax, but you'd have to widen the base to reduce the amount paid. That would be a property owner's tax. But politically, would every property owner willingly pay a property owner's tax equal to a small multiple of council rates to replace all revenue collected by land tax and stamp duty? I've previously argued this case with an exemption for those paying less than $300 to $500 per annum in council rates, but that's a debate for another day. But as letter writers are saying, stamp duty is a fixed amount. But with land tax, homeowners have no way of knowing the lifetime costs. Future retirees may not be able to afford the ever-increasing land tax and be forced to sell the family home. Is Dominic Perrottet trying to rush this legislation through before an election? And if he wanted to help first-home buyers until you can introduce a broad-based land tax, there's a simple solution to the issue of stamp duty cost, let the buyer pay off the stamp duty in instalments over, for example, the first five years, so long as they're living in the house. Well, Daniel Mookie is the opposition shadow treasurer. I think this bloke's got ability. The public don't know a lot about him. He was born in Blacktown. He's the son of Indian migrants. He's been in the upper house since 2015. He's the first MP to be sworn into an Australian parliament on a Hindu religious text. But this bloke does his homework. He's written splendidly about this stamp duty land tax issue. And Daniel Mookie joins me. Thank you for your time. I suppose the first thing I have to ask you is the opposition going to vote against this? And if so, why? Alan, we are going to vote against this piece of legislation because we don't think that people should be paying a land tax that goes up each year, every year, whenever land prices are going up that lasts forever. We don't think that family budgets can afford it. We don't think that first home buyers can afford it. We think that it will expose them to too much risks. And we don't think that Mr Perrette has a mandate to rush this law through Parliament in the 10 sitting days left before the next election. 10 sitting days before the next election? Goodness 10 sitting me. days are left before the next election. I, I agree with you that this tax will add pressure to family budgets and will not lower property prices. But just explain how this works in simple language. So you're buying a home, right? You won't make a single stamp duty payment. You'll make an annual payment. Just explain that to our viewers. Well, Alan, the way it works is, is that you, if you choose to pay this land tax, you will have to pay an annual amount for as long as you live in that property. In addition to that, the amount that you pay uh, goes up if the land value you goes, goes up as well. That is different from stamp duty, which is a fixed charge at the time that you buy the property. Right. People do so just, just, just clarifying that, just clarifying that to our viewers, the tax, and you'll correct me, Daniel, if I'm wrong, as I understand it, the tax is calculated on a fixed figure, that's the land tax, that's $400, that's automatic, and then 0.3% of the land value. Now, Daniel, yes, that, where, is there a piece of paper to show us where this come from? Why is it $400? Why is it 0.3%? Where's all that come from? Oh, look, Alan, I have absolutely no idea, and they are very good questions. I certainly tried uh, to get access to the modelling that I presume Mr Perrottet had prepared before he introduced this land tax. Uh, he hasn't released it publicly. He should. People should know precisely how he came up with those figures. This is part of the reason why I don't think that we should be trying to rush through one of the biggest Definitely. changes to New South mm. Wales property taxes in 50 years in the 100%. 10 sitting days we have left before the next I, election. I agree, with you. I, agree, I agree with you entirely. But just there's another problem here, isn't there, which isn't explained. So just repeating, this land tax as the option to stamp duty, the land tax is $400 plus 0.3% of the land value. So, uh, Daniel Mookie, if your land value increases, so will your land tax. Absolutely. Uh, and just to put this in really simple terms, if this land tax had applied from 2015, it would have cr increased by more than double most people's wages in New South Wales. It would be chewing into family budgets, much like electricity prices are after they were privatised, much like tolls are right now in New South Wales. That's why I'm very worried that families will not have 
the $2,000 that they need uh, to start paying Mr Perrottet a mm. land tax. And mm. that assumes that Mr Perrottet uh, is going to ensure that uh, it's going to spread as well. And this is the other point we've been making, Alan, as well, yeah, is I that mean, he's making just, no secret of the we fact. Need to just re- we need to just repeat this point. The, tax, the land tax will increase when your property value increases. Now, stamp duty isn't perfect, we know that. But as you have said, one of its redeeming features is its certainty. You know the charge is fixed. Now, you say the virtue of the stamp duty is that the government, uh, is that the homeowner won't fall prey to increasing costs if the government runs into financial trouble. Now, I disagree with you there because the government can increase stamp duty at any time, can't it? Just as it can increase the proportion or the percentage of the property value. So both can be increased. One's not as fixed as you might imagine. Well, it's the case that uh, governments can always change tax regimes. And certainly when it comes to the land tax, there's no guarantee that a future government won't increase it. But when it comes to stamp duty, uh, if a future government uh, decided to increase the stamp duty without taking it to an election, then I think that that future government would find itself in some pretty big political difficulty. Mm. Yet Mr Perrottet right now is trying to get this land tax through uh, with a partnership with uh, minor parties in the upper house before the people of New South Wales get to have a say Mm. in March. Mm. I don't understand. I don't understand it. I don't understand why he's doing this. Uh, I mean, just coming back. So the increase in the percentage of the, I'll come to why he's doing it in a moment. The increase in the percentage of the property value that contributes to the land tax would mean that the land tax would keep going up. Now, the buyer would have to gamble, would he not, that his land tax bill, and you've alluded to this already, and I think you've written about this, wouldn't rise more quickly than his wages. Otherwise, the tax would be eating into his disposable income. That's absolutely correct, Alan. And people just need to look at what's happened with property prices in the last three decades and what's happened with wages, and they can figure out for themselves what's more likely. Is it more likely that wages will grow faster than property prices? Is it more likely that property prices will grow faster than wages? If what's taken place in the last decades happens for the next few decades, each year, every year, this tax will chew more and more out of family budgets at a time when people can't afford it. But I mean, the key point here is it's not going to make property prices cheaper. This is the argument property prices will be cheaper. I mean, I think some economists are saying that this could increase property prices. So a buyer could use the money previously spent on stamp duty to make a higher bid at an auction. So is this, this is of first home buyers. Is this going to extend beyond first home buyers? I certainly think that Mr Perrottet would like to extend this beyond first home buyers. And you don't need to take my word for that, Alan. You can take his own words for it. He made it very clear just 18 months ago that he'd like up to 80% of properties in New South Wales to be subject to this land tax. In July, from Japan, when he was opening a trade office, he said he'd like to see whether or not he could include pensioners in this land tax. When I asked him point blank in September in Parliament myself to guarantee that he won't seek to put pensioners into this land tax system, he said to me that he'd actually see whether it's possible to do it before the election. I I pushed him hard, Alan. I I, I said, can you guarantee that if you're re-elected, you're not going to try to put pensions in it? He point blank Mm. refused to give that guarantee. So I say people should judge him on what he has said. See, I mean, the issue here is, I don't know who's advising these people. They think they know everything. This is the weakness. And for all you Liberal supporters out there, I mean, the reality is, Treasury officials say this proposal would affect about 6,500 first home buyers, 6,500 who take up the option. How many voters are going to be persuaded by this by next March? Daniel, thank you for your time. I think you're across the issue. And the key thing is to make this very simple and understandable to the voter out there. And I think you've done that. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on. There's Daniel Mookie, the shadow treasurer in the New South Wales Parliament. I'm not too sure Dominic Perrottet has done anything like enough homework on this issue, but I've got to tell you, he's a difficult man to persuade. He gives the impression that he knows everything. Well, just away from the often dispiriting world of politics, for many Australians, sport is a kind of panacea. For many other Australians, the world of the arts, theatre, music are also a welcome panacea. 
But it's a big weekend of sport for Australians, with the richest horse race in the world to be run at Randwick, the Everest. Appropriately named because success in sport, as in life, is a giant and steep climb. So it is with the race. All eyes will be on the horse commonly regarded as the finest sprinter in the world. Nature's Trip proved that at Ascot earlier this year, beating the best. Nature's Trip won the Everest last year. And when you put horse plus champion jockey James McDonald and the remarkable trainer Chris Waller together, some say it's a trifecta that can't be beaten. Except the horse has drawn the outside barrier. And even if you don't know racing, that can be a nightmare. But champions have ways of dealing with nightmares. But because it is the race it is, nothing can be assumed. So, okay, you're wondering what I think. Well, just as Chris Waller has entered the world of racing legends, so too have John Hawkes and the family. Last year, Hawkes' masked crusader wove a path through the field and made a late dive that left nature's strip jockey James McDonald wondering if he actually had won. My view is that Masked Crusader can dethrone the king on Saturday, even though in the last 18 months, Nature Strip has been unbeaten over the race distance, 1,200 metres. Masked Crusader, of course, needs a couple of days of clear drying weather because he'll get back in the field and on a heavy track, that makes things difficult. But look out for Masked Crusader making a late charge. You could get odds of 10 to 1 or better. Have a go. I will. But it's also a big day for bush trainers with the Kosciuszko again appropriately named because bush trainers have to climb some heights in the bush to qualify. All up prize money for the Everest, 15 million. The Kosciuszko, 2 million, and the winner gets 1 million. So what do we do here? Well, there's an unbeaten five-year-old trained in Tamworth by Cody Morgan, previously a very unruly animal. It's by the great Snitzel out of the Golden Slipper winner, Overreach. It's called Tal Bragar. It's number 13. Lucky number, don't you think? Tal Bragar, and to keep you in the threes, you could get 33 to one. Have a nibble. Also a big weekend for boxing. Those in boxing say it'll be the biggest 24 hours in Australian boxing. On Saturday night, the talented Brock Jarvis, having had 20 fights, no defeats, 18 KOs, takes on in Brisbane, the unbeaten 26 year old from Mackay, Liam Parrow, 22 fights for 22 wins. Liam Parrow, born into a family of Italian descent. Then on Sunday afternoon in Melbourne, George Cambosis Jr. fights the American Devon Haney, who gave him a bit of a boxing lesson in June. Coach Jeff Fennick, the great Jeff Fennick, who trains both Jarvis and Cambosis, is hopeful that Cambosis can reverse the result in the rematch in Melbourne. I warned last night that the Manly Rugby League Club were playing with sporting fire. They lit the fire this morning. Des Hasler has been terminated as coach. I said last night that Des, a really good man and a fine coach and a great person, had been outspoken about the way Manly management had handled the rainbow jersey fiasco earlier this year. I also said that the owner of the Manly club, Sean Penn, who spends most of his time living in New York, has been gunning for Des over the comments Des made about the jersey issue. Des knew nothing about it. Well, this morning, Sean Penn got his man, and Anthony Siebold will be the new Manly coach. I would suspect we haven't heard the last of things there. And heading into the World Cup for T20 cricket to start in Melbourne on Sunday, Australia have just lost two warm-up matches in a row to England. Then there's the business about the cricket 50-over captain because of the retirement of Aaron Finch. Apparently, Cricket Australia will consider the captaincy question tomorrow. That shouldn't be hard. David Warner should be the captain. And congratulations to the women's soccer team on their European tour. They've had a splendid 3-1 victory over Denmark. Australia's ranked 12 in the world, Denmark 17 in women's soccer. The girls will be hoping they can keep the momentum going all the way to the 2023 World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. But the eyes of the racing world at the weekend will be on Randwick. Time for the ladies to dress up and for the men to do, well, whatever men do. We've heard endless overtures from the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, about his budget on October 25. There'll be no new taxes. And yet, as I said earlier tonight, we have unconscionable levels of debt. Labor has to honour more than $2 billion of election promises. The growth in spending for the NDIS is forecast to be over 12%. That's just growth. And in defence spending, over 4%. And of course, then there's aged care and health. And of course, 
the cost of serving, servicing the Commonwealth debt will increase by 14%. That's why they're carrying on about stage three tax cuts, but that won't get them out of trouble. The way to go, if you've got the guts, is to cut waste. Let me give you some examples. I'm all for the arts, but how do we give a female artist $20,000 for her yawning room at a Woolloomooloo gallery? How do you give $20,000 to an art group for Project Immaculate, where a Melbourne artist is filming and recording, listen to this quote, monthly live self-insemination to elevate the experience of queer reproduction and disrupt heteronormative parenting narratives. Why is 80,000 given for drawing a bum puppet with the image of the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison on its posterior? $80,000 went to a Chinese Australian poet writing about toilet rolls and bodily fluids. Another 80,000 went to a bloke, this is last year, and what were the Labor Party saying about it in opposition? It should have been a field day. But $80,000 to a bloke who said he was an experimentalist and a poet, and that, quote, poetry always accompanies bowel movements. There is a mysterious connection between the two. $80,000. Is that a palpable waste of taxpayers' money? Ideologically driven rubbish? And government and opposition have done nothing. Then you get the staff levels of politicians. As I've said many times, I worked for a prime minister. We had five staff. Now, I know things have changed. But does any Australian leader need almost 60 staff? If Dr Chalmers wants to talk about waste and saving money, which he should, rather than raising taxes, let him start with his indulged ministerial colleagues. Senator Malcolm Roberts is an outstanding, highly intelligent, splendidly credentialed One Nation Senator from Queensland. Only this week he has raised what he called wasteful federal government, government spending, where two government departments alone spent nearly a quarter of a million dollars of taxpayers' money last financial year on lavish business class flights. He cited one public servant charging taxpayers $4,955 for a 55-minute business class flight from Canberra to Sydney. Senator Malcolm Roberts joins me. Malcolm Roberts, thank you for your time. Hang on, $5,000 for 55 minutes? What was going on? Well, it must have been very, very tall and very cramped to justify the extra room in business class for just 55 minutes. I think he should be able to hang on. But, Alan, this just is symptomatic of the sense of entitlements, the low accountability and the absolutely atrocious governance in this country. I mean, you've provided a list here as long as your arm. I mean, if it's someone yep. else's money, of course, taxpayers' money, away they go. Well, Alan, when I walk on board a plane, I walk through business class and I go to the back of the bus. I walk past the Greens in business class, past the Liberals in business class, past the Nationals in business class, past the Labor in business class, and plus past the bureaucrats in business class. Why can't they go to the back just like I do? And, and in fact, you get a better flight because you listen to people, you have a, have a good natter to people. Isn't that what it's about, listening to constituents? Yes. I mean, you make this point, don't you? And it's, it's so true that many hardworking, taxpaying Australians who are watching you tonight have never flown business class in their life. Yet here is workers' money, taxes, being used for staff to fly up the front of the plane. That's right. And, and these people are paying their wages. These people are paying their flights. These people are paying the, the premium for, for the business class experience, the, the free booze. And yet they've never been on a plane, some of them. No. And yet they've never I mean, been I, I, certainly on business there is class. A case, there is a case for ministers and others flying business class where they can get some work done and whatever. But on a 55-minute flight, for God's sake, I wouldn't know how you'd run up a bill of $5,000. But why ministerial staff? Malcolm, I mean, this is, you've never been a minister. Your boss has never been a minister. This is completely over the odds. The, the indulged way in which these people have staff that could never, ever be fully occupied because there's a department as well. I mean, if you're the Minister for Industrial Relations with a stack of staff or the, the Treasurer, then there's a Treasury as well full of bureaucrats. How the hell can these staff numbers be justified? Well, they can't be, Alan. Uh, you made a very good point at CPAC. Let me just quote your figures. The gross national debt was at 20% of GDP in 2013. That was the end of the Labor Party. Yeah. 
uh, uh, time in Canberra. We are now at over 42% Correct. of GDP, and that's with, what, nine years of Liberal yep. National Party yep. government. Absolutely. The so-called restraining restraint ones, the, the conservatively, the fiscally conservative uh, party, oh, yes. and yet we have... We're at 42% yes. of GDP. I mean, it used to be raison d'etre that the, that the coalition, the Liberals, would manage your money better. And those figures that I cited indicate that it's just been an extravaganza. Look, it, it, Malcolm, it might be unfashionable to say it, and I'm offering no reflection on a court case currently taking place in the ACT. But here were ministerial staffers, plural, out on the town getting drunk now, when I worked in Canberra, we had no time to be going to clubs or bars, even if we knew where they were. We were just too damn busy. It prompts a question, doesn't it? What kind of worldly informed advice could any 24-year-old give to a government minister? Well, Alan, it, it, I find the same problems at, at Parliament House. I never stop. I haven't got time to go out into the no. pubs. I haven't got time to go and get boozy. Um, but, you know, what it, what it is, is the rot always starts at the top. The fish rotting starts at the head of the fish. And the same with government. What we've got is a very lax system in Parliament. We've got very low accountability between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. And what we see is, I mean, we're talking about $5,000 flights to, to Sydney. We're talking about the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, $5,500 flights, $4,300 flights, $4,184, $4,095, $5,063 flights on business class. You know, we're talking about that, but the bigger malaise in this country, that, that is almost insignificant compared to the bigger malaise. We are talking about policies in this country that are not based on data and that contradict the real world data. Mm. We're talking about policies that are costing people trillions of dollars, not billions, Alan, trillions of dollars. You know that from yes. the energy consequences. Yes. Well, I'm going to we're talk about, about we're, I, we're, I'll cover that energy thing in a moment. I just want to finish on staff. See all this nonsense about the Teals being refused staff by Anthony Albanese. I give Anthony Albanese full marks. These people automatically have four staff and they want more. They want, I'd like to know what Zali Stegall has done that benefits any constituent in the seat of Warringah. There, there's no reason for that in, in a small seat of Ringer. Look at Anthony Albanese's seat. It's three kilometres across in radius, roughly, 32 square kilometres in, yep. in total area. Yep. Queensland is, what was, what was it now? I've forgotten the figures, but you know it's, it's 2,800 kilometres from north to south. Yes. It's 2,000 kilometres east to west. We need staff to get around and listen and with us. So there is a need for some staff for, for senators, but not, not for uh, no. MPs in inner city suburbs. I don't want to let you go without talking about this cost that you talked about, which is a very valid point. What are the costs to the taxpayer of policies? Now, we've seen this week the very thing that you and I have warned about. Energy prices going to climb through the roof, up to 35% increases next year. Business and households won't be able to cope. You and I have warned of this. We talked about 17 internationally respected climate scientists from six nations, including Australia, and covering many disciplines of climate science and climatology, who have confirmed your conclusion that CSIRO, our leading research entity in this country, had never presented logical scientific points needed as the basis of policy in climate change. That is correct. And, and what's more, what, what we find is that the CSIRO in their first presentation to me, which lasted two and a half hours, as did the other two presentations, the first one, they admitted that they have never said to any government that there is danger from carbon dioxide from human activity. So I said, who has said that danger? And they said, well, you'll have to go and ask the ministers who've been saying it. Mm. The second, second uh, presentation, they admitted to me, Alan, under cross-examination uh, of their presentation, that they, that today's temperatures are not unprecedented. Yet the whole global warming, global climate lie was based on, on the premise that we've got unprecedented temperatures. Mm. Complete rubbish, complete rubbish. Yes. And now we've got, uh, we've, got, we've got trillions of dollars going to be blown and wasted and opportunity costs. We're going to have Australia decimated. Look, Alan, when I, when I was a boy, I lived, I was born in India for the first seven years there. Then we moved to the Hunter Valley. I lived in the bush outside of a town called Curry Curry. I used to cycle to school and I went past the aluminium smelter at Alcan. That was built, as was the Tomago smelter, because they were attracted to Hunter Valley because of our clean, uh, high quality, 
coal, which made cheap electricity. Australia had the world's cheapest electricity. We've now got amongst the world's highest. That's it, we have. But the primacy, of, the primacy of energy is really fundamental. You don't get human progress without ever decreasing energy prices. From, 19, from 1850 to 1970, we had a relentless reduction in the unit costs of electricity, which dramatically rose productivity, which dramatically gave us our standard of living. Mm. We went from scratching in the dirt in famines in this case, course of 120 years to bring free of all of that. That's human progress. In the last few decades, we have reversed that. And instead of having a decreasing price of electricity, we've had a doubling and a mm. trebling of, inc- of electricity prices. Now, the significant thing of that is that not only does human progress get reversed, but manufacturing these days, the largest cost component is not labor. The largest cost component has been electricity for quite some time in manufacturing. When we increase our electricity prices due to the highest subsidies of solar and wind in the world, we are double the next highest per capita. We are sending our manufacturing to China. China is manufacturing with our coal, wind turbines and solar panels, shipping them to here where we subsidize the Chinese to install them. We subsidize the Chinese to run them. We are gutting our manufacturing. We have got farmers in North Queensland, Central Queensland, Southern Queensland during the last drought not planting fodder crops because the cost of electricity for pumping water was too high. I mean, this is absurd. We are destroying our country. I call it the solar and wind, a kamikaze malinvestment. Kamikaze malinvestment. Well, That's what it, these things are. I've called, it, I've called it a national economic suicide note. We've run out of time, Malcolm, but I just want to commend you. This man called the climate change bill, talks in simple language, and I'll say it slowly. Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts. That's this bloke here has said, and I've said this too, but he's put it in different lingo, the climate change bill is the biggest change to Australian lives the Parliament of Australia has ever considered. I've called it a national economic suicide note, and that's where we're heading. Malcolm, good to talk to you. We'll keep talking to you. We'll have you back. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Alan. Thank thank you for what you're doing. Not at all. There is Senator Malcolm Roberts. I think I could present a whole program on the crises facing us. We're voters, workers, people on Struggle Street. We elect governments, and as you heard in the interview with Malcolm Roberts, they've never been so big, bloated, and useless. There's a headline in one of the papers today using that very word, crisis, and it's called Crisis Point, referring to the fact that a conflict has erupted at Newcastle's John Hunter Hospital in New South Wales, one of Australia's biggest hospitals, 12 specialists, have penned a letter describing deteriorating care, which they say has reached, quote, crisis point, that resourcing is so bad that clinicians were being forced to make daily decisions that seriously compromised patient care. The letter said in part, quote, there is grossly inadequate bed capacity, dangerously inadequate critical care capacity, and inadequate urgent theatre access, unquote. The doctors say it would be ethically wrong for them to stay silent. Quote, this has reached a crisis point, unquote. Now, there are nearly 500 doctors at John Hunter Hospital, and there are about 1,400 hospitals in Australia. Have you noticed when you drive past hospitals how the infrastructure has increased, buildings going up everywhere? What you're not told is they're full of administrators, paper shufflers. Yet, as the administration gets bloated, the people at the coalface see their load increasing. I had a letter from a viewer, listener, who said to me, Alan, during my recent medical experience, I took particular notice of the dedication, commitment, and genuine concern of the specialist doctors and nursing staff who go about their chosen profession in a very overloaded system. He wrote, some members of the team handling me, from the surgeon to the ward supervisor, you'd see at 6 a.m. and again at 8 p.m. Surgeons also visiting patients at weekends, He said, Alan, I know you've had similar experiences. I'm sure you'll concede that if politicians put the same commitment and work into their profession, this country would be in far better shape, unquote. Well, we, the taxpayers, tip in well over $200 billion a year for healthcare, $200,000 million. That's before we pay our private health insurance and all that stuff. This is just taxpayers' money to governments. $200,000 million on health expenditure, but the problem's worsen. There's a budget coming down on October 25, 12 days away. Apart from the more than 2 billion of promises, 
Labor made in the election campaign, spending growth per year for the NDIS will rise by over 12%. Defence spending will rise by over 4% a year. And of course, the cost of serving, servicing the Commonwealth debt, as I said earlier tonight, will increase by 14%. Then you've got the Committee for Economic Development of Australia called CEDA, warning last year that there was an aged care labour shortage of 17,000 just to meet basic standards of care for the aged. And the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, which reported last year, argued that an extra 3.5 billion would have to be found. Now remember, I said in this coronavirus fiasco that $80 billion was being spent on JobKeeper for many people who shouldn't have been put out of work in the first place, let alone a person on casual pay of 400 bucks a week who suddenly found himself on 750 bucks a week. Governments mouth cliches about dignity in old age and the quality of care, but the Royal Commission into Aged Care found that in that sector alone, there were failures in clinical care and infection control, which failures resulted in hundreds of deaths. But as I've said many times, families pay a fortune for a place in an aged care facility. Carers and nurses are leaving because they can earn significantly more money in other, in other areas of the care economy. And when the healthcare minister, Mark Butler, in the election said, he'll introduce laws to reform aged care, including 24 seven nursing in residential aged care from July next year, that will require an additional 14,000 nurses. Where are they gonna come from? Only this month we learnt that one in five nurses will quit their job in the coming year. And unless something is done, there'll be 40,000 nursing vacancies in three years' time, apart from the aged care problem. Why? Dissatisfaction with wages, burnout from the intense and demanding nature of the work, and unsurprising, rampant understaffing, driving Australian nurses to seek new opportunities or even leave the profession. This is not made up stuff. This is a report by the consulting firm McKinsey & Co. 41% of nurses surveyed said they would move countries or leave nursing entirely in the next year, 41%. The crisis, there's that word again, will leave an estimated 20,000 to 40,000 nursing positions unfilled by 2025. Now already today, Australia is short of 14,000 nurses. By 2030, that's projected to be 110,000. As one cynic said, it'd be easier to invade Ukraine. But this is just abject failure everywhere and especially by government, which prompts one question, which I won't address now. Should all nurses be doing a degree before they become a nurse? Once upon a time, we had fantastic nurses, but they took up the job after they left school and learnt on the job. One thing is for sure, free nursing courses won't solve the shortage. It's become a too demanding, too exhausting, and too poorly paid profession. As well, the Bureau of Statistics in a report two years ago indicated that almost 40 assaults are recorded each month in New South Wales hospitals. People stabbed, spat upon, verbally abused, and none of that's reported. And as if all that's not enough, we now confront a doctor shortage. And the problem is the same. GPs filling out ever increasing mountains of paperwork and reports for everything from workers' compensation to jury duty. I'll have something to say about the doctor crisis next week. But is this what you get for over $200,000 million of your money? Before we go, tell me, is this a joke or are some people just unapologetically stupid? As reported by the Herald Sun newspaper, Melbourne City Council has appointed a chief or several chief heat officers to deal with life-threatening, God, chief heat officers, to deal with life-threatening, quote-unquote life-threatening, that's what they said, climate change effects. And this comes after Victoria had its coldest start to winter in 70 years. Wonder where are the, where, where are the chief cold officers? The Melbourne Lord Mayor Sally Capp said the new chief heat officers would be dedicated to reducing the city's risks from extreme heat. Quote, We've already started acting to tackle extreme heat in Melbourne, using initiatives like our urban forest strategy to green and cool the city. But there's more work to be done, she said. 
Melbourne's already experiencing, she said, the consequences of climate change with extreme heat, a life-threatening reality. It's why we need to do more, unquote. No, 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 it isn't, Mayor Cap. Melbourne is not experiencing the consequences of climate change. Temperatures are low, the dams are full. There's been no increase in extreme weather. This is utter madness and ideological ignorance. By the way, Sally, if you're so concerned about extreme heat, why not build a coal-fired power plant adjacent to the Yarra River? That way the people of Melbourne could use air conditioning to cool themselves down on a hot, windless day without triggering blackouts. But no, that'd be bad for the environment according to the activist zealots. But unfortunately, the madness isn't just influencing Melbourne City Council. According to an analysis by Advance Australia, at least 35% of Australia's local councils have declared a climate emergency. And the wokeism only starts at climate hysteria. In January 2020, the Brisbane City Council endorsed an event where drag queens were tasked with reading children's books to a group of seven-year-olds at Brisbane City Library. The City of Melbourne Council publicly supported a 2021 Australia Day, quote, Invasion Day dawn service to, quote, recognise that colonisation and genocide are ongoing processes and that sovereignty over country was never ceded, unquote. Oh, and Mossman Council in Sydney, which represents some of the wealthiest people in the Southern Hemisphere, reckons, quote, the past decade was the hottest in human history and there have been, quote, widespread increases in fire weather and declines in rainfall. Isn't that a joke? What are these people drinking? Just last week, Central Coast Council in New South Wales announced it was banning Australian flags so they don't offend unhinged woke activists. Isn't it time we woke up? My message to this mob, stop with the woke crap and do your bloody job. Pick up our bins, fill in the potholes, clean up our parks. We're not paying rates for you to worry about climate change, promote drag queens, rubbish Australia Day and ban our flag. Well, that's one way to finish the week, isn't it? That's it from me tonight. Thank you for company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you Monday night at eight o'clock. Have a great weekend. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.